in school ministry, second year school ministry, I've been working through um, a series with the students on leadership through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, I've personally just been so powerfully moved by, by the book of Nehemiah and how God um, is using it in my own personal life and, and encouraging me. How many of you know the book of Nehemiah fairly well, like you, you're at least familiar with it? And so let me just give you a little background. So, um, you know, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon, came in and destroyed Israel, took captive all the Israelites or the ones that were, you know, left alive, that is, and, and took many of them into Babylon. And that's where we get the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so from the book of Daniel, Jeremiah prophesied that the people would be in captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied years before the people went into captivity that Babylon would come in, that they would, they would destroy Israel, destroy the, tear down the temple, and carry the people away for 70 years into Babylon, into captivity. And so when they carried the, when they carried the Israelites into, into Babylon, as you know, they carried Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into Babylon. And how many of you know that God always has this X factor? You know, I like graphs and charts, and I, I like to uh, see how things progress, but you can't factor in Jesus. Or maybe, you, maybe I should say you have to factor in Jesus, because you just never know where he's going to show up in your crisis. And so um, they carried these four guys into Babylon, and you know Daniel prayed, the Bible says Daniel prayed three times a day for 70 years, and Daniel lives with Nebuchadnezzar, lives through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, his son Belshazzar, Darius, and the king, king Darius, and then finally King Cyrus. And Jeremiah prophesied, I think it was somewhere around 50 years before Cyrus was born, that a king named Cyrus would release the people to rebuild the temple. And so in the 70th year, it's a beautiful story in the book of Daniel, the 70th year, Daniel is praying in the 70th year, as he did for, for 70 years. In the 70th year, he's praying, and he re, he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he realizes it's the 70th year. And he has a relationship, a great relationship with King Cyrus, who, as far as we know, was, was not a believer. And, and anyway, through this relationship with Cyrus and through this prophetic word from Jeremiah and also Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 45 that Cyrus would release his treasures into rebuilding the temple. And so Cyrus lets the people go. Not only does he, not only does he release the, the prisoners who are captive in Babylon and actually Persia, by now the Persian kingdom um, actually came in and took over the Babylonian kingdom. Not only did he release the Israelites to rebuild the temple, but he paid, he paid out of, this, out of his own treasury, Cyrus paid for the most expensive re- rebuilding in the history, most expensive building in the history of the world. And so he sends the people back to Israel to rebuild, and that's where we get the book of Ezra. And Ezra is the story of the rebuilding of the temple. And then they get the temple all done. They finish the temple, which is a huge project, happened over many, many years, cost over a billion dollars, estimated one billion dollars. A 1,600-square-foot building cost a billion dollars. That's a building. And 
at the, at the end of that, you know, we have the story of uh, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a story of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem because the, wall, the walls represented strength. In fact, Isaiah 60 says, verse 18, you'll call your walls salvation, you'll call your gates praise. And so this morning I want to talk about rebuilding the walls of our life. And this is such a beautiful picture, the story of Daniel, the story of Ezra, the story of Nehemiah, the story of Ezra, the rebuilding of the temple. How many of you know, but as soon as we receive Jesus Christ, he comes into our life and he builds his temple in our life. And suddenly we have a relationship with God. Although like in the book of Nehemiah, our walls are still torn down, our gates are still not set up in our lives. God, first thing he does is he he creates a place for communion with him. And yet he's still working on putting our life back together. The book of Nehemiah is a beautiful picture of how God restores our lives and how God restores cities, how God restores nations. The, the name Nehemiah means comforter. And the main enemy in the book of Nehemiah is a, is a person, a guy named Tobiah. And Tobiah means good for nothing. You know who he depicts in the, in the book of Nehemiah. And so we pick up the story. Nehemiah is in... He's, he's a cupbearer to the king. He's, he'd be like vice president to the president. He's, he's not just handing food to the king, but he's the, most, he's the king's most trusted counselor. He's in another country, and there's no email, there's no cell phones, there's, there's no communication like that. And so, so news travels very slowly, and Nehemiah is excited about the fact that in his homeland that they've rebuilt the temple, and the news of this beautiful temple being restored has been carried throughout the world, and Nehemiah's brothers come to visit him at the, in, the, in, this, in the king's palace. And Nehemiah is excited to see his brothers. This is in chapter 1. And he, he thinks his brothers are going to give him good news. And so he says, excitedly welcomes them into the king's chamber and says, How is the rebuilding of the walls going? How is Jerusalem doing? And they said, The temple's been rebuilt, but the walls are burning with fire. And so for seven, over 70 years, they've been trying to rebuild the walls of, the, of Jerusalem around around the, the city of Jerusalem. And, and, they, and they say, and the gates are burned with fire and we're unable to build, rebuild the, the wall of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah begins to engage with his king, the king he's serving. And he, he tells the king of this vision he has to go back to his homeland and to restore the walls and to rebuild the gates. And the king commissions him to go back to his own home country, which he hasn't been to probably his whole life, or maybe, maybe as a child. And the king sends him back to his homeland for a season to rebuild the walls and to restore the gates. And we're going to pick up that story today in, in, in chapter 2. And there's, there's a lot to, to actually cover, but we're going to narrow it down to um, just a, a, a couple of chapters. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, if you'll turn to verse uh, 11... We're going to begin, we're going to pick up the story of Nehemiah and then apply it to, to, to how God is using it in our life and, and how the Comforter wants to come into our life and, and work in our life. In, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. And I came to Jerusalem. This is out of, actually, this is written, this book is actually written out of Nehemiah's own journals. And so these are his own words. So I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Anybody else know somebody who was in the grave for three days? And I arose at night. Everybody say, I arose at night. I arose at night. I just want to stop there and say this. Nehemiah arose at night. Listen, in in darkness, when things are dark, it's not time to complain. (laughs) 
It's not time to whine, it's time to shine. If you're in a dark time in your life, and, and all of us have been through dark times if you've been on the planet very long, when you're in a dark time in your life, when you're in the midst of darkness, it's not time to lay down and give up. It's time to get up and fight. Don't whine. It's time to shine. How many of you understand that we prosper as believers? We were born. Listen, we are light. We were born for darkness. We were born to shine in the middle of dark times. Listen, the more they persecuted the, in, in Egypt, the more they persecuted the, the Israelites, the more they prospered. And so in, in the midst of darkness, it says this, that Nehemiah arose in the darkness, a few men with him. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem, nor was there no animal. No, there was no animal with me except the animal I was riding. So he went out at night. Everybody say at night. By the valley gate. Everybody say valley gate. Everybody, anybody ever been at the valley gate? Anybody ever been to the valley of the shadow of death? He went by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well. Anybody ever been drinking out of the dragon's well? And he went on to the refuge gate. Anybody ever been by the garbage dump and kind of hung out there for a while? And he was inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate. How many of you know the fountain gate? That's where we need to hang. To the around, and I, I passed by the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. How many of you know when you can't get to the fountain gate and the king's pool, you're in trouble? I don't know if you got that. You got to hang. You hang out in the valley, you're going to end up with chickens instead of the eagles. You got to cross over the chicken line, as Kevin said. Here we go. So I went up at night by the ravine, inspected the wall. I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know what I'd, where I'd gone or what I'd done. Or what I'd, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in? Everybody say we. That Jerusalem is desolate. Its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall so that we will no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let's arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Everybody say good work. But Sambalat, the Horabite, and Tobiah, the Amorite, official, and Gershom, the Arab, heard it. And they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing they are doing? Are they rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion, right, a memorial in Jerusalem. And this morning, I want to just talk about how we see the walls of our life, the walls of our city, restored. And I love several things that Nehemiah did here. I want to emphasize a couple of them. The first thing he did is he inspected the walls at night. And I want to tell you something that in order to actually solve a problem, you have to actually get involved. You have to actually know what the problem is. Yelling at it from the outside doesn't solve the problem. In America, we are so afraid of pain. We have mistaken joy for pleasure. And it's so easy for us to make our life's goal 
pleasure instead of joy. How many of you know that when you consider it all joy and you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, that joy is not pleasure? How many of you know he's not saying, consider it pleasure when you encounter various trials? How many of you figured out that joy and pleasure are not the same thing? And how many of you understand when you're in the middle of a trial, that trials do not test your character, they test your faith? Consider it all joy and you count various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The question isn't how strong you are in trials. The question is how strong is he? Trials do not test your character. They test your trust in God. And so Jesus said this. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then he said, he said that we are to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. How many of you understand that until we've mourned with people who mourn, until we've mourned with cities who mourn, until we've mourned with countries who mourn, we can't rejoice with them? Like we can't, we can't be, we can't be afraid of pain. We can't, you know, it's like it's very difficult. Do you understand? Until you've mourned, you can't be comforted. In America, we have this thing about people grieving. When people grieve, we feel like it's our duty to get them out of grief. And I do understand that there are times when people get stuck in grief, and instead of it being a season, they turn it into a lifetime. Of course we need to help those people out of grief. But do you understand that before, until you grieve, you really can't be comforted? Do you understand that, that there are seasons for grief and there are seasons for comfort? And sometimes we're so afraid of pain that what we call faith is actually denial because we can't assess the problem. Whenever you can't look at, at your challenges in your life, whenever you can't balance your checkbook, so to speak, whenever you're afraid to balance your checkbook or go to the doctor because you got this thing going on, whenever you're afraid of it, I'm not saying you should go to the doctor, I'm saying when fear keeps you from going to the doctor to find out what's really wrong, don't tell me you have faith. That's called denial. And one of the ways that we solve our problems is by, by understanding what the real problem is. And oftentimes when we distance ourselves from pain, we create symptomatic cures. And today's cure becomes tomorrow's problem because we don't actually know what's causing the problem. We don't know the root cause. We don't understand the ecosystem that's producing the dysfunction in the first place because we're afraid, too afraid of the pain that it takes to get involved. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Do you understand? He's the cupbearer of the king. He's not even a citizen of Jerusalem. And he says to the, to the officials, do you see the problem we are in? As long as, as long as you want to give other people advice about their problem, you're not going to be much help. People always have a solution about what you should have did. In the Monday morning quarterbacks, known how you should have thrown the ball. When people come to, to me, and they, they often do, they come to us at Bethel, and they're like, you know what you guys should do? I know they're not. <laughs> yeah, you don't know what we should do because you're not involved in the problem. And from the outside, it looks like you just do A, B, and it equals C. And I'm telling you, we, we are all guilty of that in so many areas. Politics, we look from a distance, and we absolutely know what... The, the president, the congress, the representative, our city officials, we absolutely know what they should do, even though we don't know what we're talking about. What they should do. How many of you know? You don't even know what you're talking about. You're not even part of the problem, so how can you be part of the solution? And, and I love this. He tells them, do you, see, do you see the bad situation we are in? 
that Jerusalem is desolate, his gates are burned with fire. He's not in denial. He's not like everything's wonderful. But then he reminds them of the testimony. He reminds them of the favor that the king gave him. He reminds them of the greatness of his God. Do you understand that faith sees? Hope feels. Faith sees. Hope feels. Faith sees. And love never fails. We're we're going to succeed because God is with us. And I I love this part. He, He tells them about the testimonies of his king and how the king is with them. And verse 18, it says, they said, then they said, let us, everybody say us, arise and build. See, I think that you can't solve problems for people. You can only solve them with people. What happens in lots of Americans, a lot of first world countries, actually, we go into places that we're in third world countries and, and, and actually it doesn't even have to be a third world country. We end up taking the responsibility instead of becoming co-owners with people. You know what end up, you know, you know, we're in, we end up being a sugar daddy. People are like, here comes the sugar daddy. They have the money. They have the solution. How many understand that people don't need a hand up? They need a hand up. Mm. Proverbs says a man's hunger works for him and urges him on to work. Paul said, if a man doesn't eat, uh, if he doesn't work, let, neither let him eat. I'm not saying let people starve. Of course not. That's, I, I'm simply saying that sometimes instead of taking the responsibility with someone, we take it from them. When Peter and John were at the gate, beautiful, and the man was begging, he was looking for a handout. Do you remember this? How many? Are you guys okay? Sorry. He's looking for a handout. He's at the gate, beautiful. He's lame. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none. We are pastors. But what I have, I give to you. And the man has his hand out. He's looking for a handout. Literally, it says his, he had his hand out looking for him to put some change in his hand. And it says that Peter took him by the hand in which he was looking for a handout and he gave him, and it says, and he lifted him up. He, instead of giving him a hand out, instead of giving him a hand out, he gave him a, a hand up. And all I'm trying to say is, is that if you want to get out of this ecosystem, maybe you have something going on in your life. Eric prayed in the first service and talked in staff meeting this morning about he felt like the Lord was saying to us that there was people that were stuck in ecosystems in which they could predict the future without the gift of prophecy because they had been in this cycle for so long. I totally think that was right. I totally believe that. that in fact, if we're going to be honest, all of us have been stuck in cycles at times. How do you get out of the cycle? How do you get out of the cycle? The first thing you have to do is you have to understand what's causing the cycle. This isn't going to work. Eyes wide closed isn't going to work. Like, what's actually wrong? And some of us are so afraid of what we're going to see when we open that closet of generations of dysfunction. We're so afraid that the dysfunction... Actually, if you want to be honest, we're afraid that dysfunction is bigger than God. We're afraid we're going to open that door, we're going to see something is going to be bigger than God, and we're not going to be able to solve it. And I want to tell you, it's probably bigger than you, if it's a cycle that's been going for a long time, but it's not bigger than the God that's in you and that you serve.
Let's go on. So Nehemiah imparts ownership to them. Chapter 4. I know we're halfway through the movie already. Sorry. You have to read the whole chapter to get, I mean, a whole book to get the idea of where we're going. But chapter 4, Nehemiah and the team have now begun to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And I love this, by the way. You know, Nehemiah is not, he's not a contractor. He's not an engineer. He's not a carpenter. I'm trying, well, here's what I'm getting at. He's probably the last guy you would ever think is going to rebuild the walls. And, and I'll give you a little clue. What took them 70 years of trying to build, like they tried to rebuild these walls for 70 years, he rebuilt the walls in 52 days. Why? Listen, let me, let me tell you why. He, he didn't know a thing about building walls, but he knew a lot about encouraging people. And I believe that the most needed gift right now in the body of Christ is not the gift of prophecy. It's not the gift of healing. Those things are all very important. So understand, I believe in those things. But the most needed gift in the body of Christ now is the gift of encouragement. That when I get with you, you leave, in, you leave full of courage. I get my courage and I give it to you. I'm telling you, people run around, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And instead of going, no, no, listen, my God is the God of the highest heavens. The sky is not falling. I'm actually part of an unshakable kingdom. Come on in here. And so here we go. Chapter four, verse one. Now it came about when Sam Bellet heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He became furious and very angry. I like that. A double negative. The Bible wants you to know he was really, 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 really mad. And he mocked the Jews. And I want to stop for a minute. You know, some of you, you're little, before you served God, you were like, ah, it was peaceful. You know, I, I received Jesus because people said I would have joy. And I've been miserable. It's like, no, no, Listen. Joy comes from Jesus. Happiness comes from happenings. Joy and pleasure, not the same thing. And sometimes what happens, we, we start to, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, you're like, you know, I was a Christian for 10 years and loving Jesus and everything was cool. And then all of a sudden, you know, we started doing this thing and, and I'm just miserable and all hell broke loose. It's like something's wrong. It's like, no. Actually, something's probably right in your life, finally. Finally, you're taking some land that was, <laughs> that, that was yours, but then inhabited by some demonic presence. And when you broke into there, they started to be angry and very and furious. I'm telling you, some of you are living in such pleasure because you're not doing anything. Hanging out, sipping suds in the king's palace and wondering why everybody's having such struggle. Well, you're not struggling because you're not struggling. You know, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but there is a struggle. And if you're not having one, it's because you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything dangerous. Do you know that nobody, no country owns the Antarctica? Do you know that? No country owns Antarctica. You know why? <laughs> Exactly. There's nothing to own. It's, it's not inhabitable. It's funny to me. People will fight over things that nobody wants. When we were, when our kids were young, I, being a laid-back personality that I am, 
Bill used to tell me concerning my teenagers, when my kids became teenagers, he said, choose your battles. Don't fight for something that nobody wants to live on. You know, my daughter would come out of her bedroom with purple hair. And she would, I remember this one time in particular. I'm sure it was a season, but the first time was the shock. Came out with purple hair and one purple sock, one green sock, and two different shoes. And she's going to school. And I remember the words echoing in my, my mind from Bill. Choose your battles. And I'm thinking, you know what? When she's 40, she's not going to have purple hair and wear... I'm sorry, some of you. <laughs> we should move on. <laughs> Times have changed since the example worked. <laughs> Choose your battles. Don't fight for something that nobody wants to live on. But I'm going to tell you, if you're fighting for something that... Listen, if you encounter lots of resistance, there's a treasure in them there hills. If, you're, if you've, you're going through life and suddenly you encounter troubles, guess what? You have to have a test to have a money. Oh, I want to live in victory. You need a battle. Oh, God, I want to be a miracle worker. Then you need one. You know, when I say, God, I want to be a miracle worker, I'm thinking, help other people. I'm not thinking, need one myself. I don't know. Maybe you're different than me. In chapter 4, oh, oh. (laughs) I don't know how you do this in 40 minutes. Okay. Chapter 4, he was furious and very mad. Did we say that? And he spoke in the presence of his brothers, verse 2, and the wealthy men of Samaria. And he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they uh, revive the burned stones from the dusty rubble? Even the burned ones. And Tobiah, the Amorite, was near. And he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, would break down their stone wall. I'd like to take more time, but I really want to spend the most time on my last on my last point. So here is five. I want to give you quickly five symptoms that you're under demonic assault. Ready? Five symptoms that you're under demonic assault. Number one, these feeble Jews. He attacks your personhood, your identity. Number two, can they restore it for themselves? He attacks your motives. Yeah, you're doing something awesome, but it's all about you. It's always about you. Number three, can they offer sacrifices? He attacks your relationship with God. You know what? Lou Ingalls has a relationship with God. He prays. What do you call what you do? What is that thing you're doing? Number four, can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? He attacks your ability to accomplish the mission in which God has sent you. Number five, If a fox would jump on it, it will fall down. He attacks the quality of your life and ministry. He attacks the quality of your life and ministry. Listen, nothing's changed in thousands of years. You can reduce every attack down to these five symptoms. Think about Jesus. It says that God, in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, God spoke from heaven when Jesus was baptized. Remember this? And he said, this is my beloved, what? Son, who I'm well pleased. Remember, there was no chapter breaks when, the, when those, when those uh, Gospels were written. 
The very next sentence says, and Jesus was led into the wilderness by the capital S spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be tempted by the devil. What was the devil's first temptation? If you are the son of God, remember God said, this is my beloved son. And the devil said, if you are. How many of you know that when you know who you are and whose you are, you pretty much won the battle? And by the way, when you're in, when you're in a trial, you're like, did God, I don't know if God brought me here or the devil did. Have you ever had that going on? I remember we went through a dark night of the soul five years ago, four, four and a half years ago. And, and uh, it's a terrible time. I don't have time to share with you right now. But I remember the first six months, I absolutely could not stand to read chapter 4 of Matthew and chapter 4 of Luke, where it said, and G- Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. It's no wonder in Matthew chapter 6 he said, he told us to pray this prayer, pray that you wouldn't be led into temptation. <laughs> God, pray, I pray you wouldn't lead me into temptation. Where did he get that prayer? Probably in the wilderness. And so I, I laid there for three or four months thinking, is this God or is this the devil? Like, is this God or is this the devil? And one day I heard, the God, I heard God say, yes. <laughs> is this you or is this the devil? Yes. I don't get it. See, God wants you in the wilderness. And so does the devil. See, the book of Luke says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. But when he beat the devil, he left in the power of the Spirit. He entered by the Spirit and left in the power of the Spirit. How many of you understand that when it's only after you win your personal victory that you have a corporate anointing? See, God wanted, God drew Jesus there and he weakened them. Remember, it was... It was only after the 40th day that the devil came. It says after he became hungry. Why? Because Jesus was, I mean, God was luring the devil into the wilderness. When Jesus looked weak, he was really strong. Because when you're weak, he is strong. So God wants you there and the devil wants you there, but they have two different purposes for you being there. The devil wants you there so he can destroy you. God wants you there so you can destroy the works of the devil. That's a good word, actually. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 12. When the Jews who lived near came and told us ten times, they'll come up against us in every place that we turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the spaces. Everybody say lowest parts. Behind the wall and the exposed places. Everybody say exposed places. And I stationed people and families with, with swords, spears, and bows. And when I saw their fear... I arose and I spoke to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people. And I said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. There's, there's a bunch out of this, but I want to take just a couple of pieces. First of all, he stationed people in the low places and the exposed places. If you're going through hell, you need friends who are good at what you're bad at. Let's forget hell. If you're going through life, 
I guess it is the same. <laughs> Just joking. Joseph Garland says, Garlington says, God closes one door and opens another, but it's hell in the hallway. When you're going through life, you need friends who are good at what you're bad at. Now, here's the struggle. You, it's hard to hang around people who are good at what you're bad at. How many of you understand what I'm saying? And the rest of you, what you're bad at is acknowledging what you're bad at. If you, if you really suck at finances, and you're always broke, and you, know, and you spend too much money, and you live on your credit cards, and da-da-da, it's like a, poverty, a cycle of poverty. It's very difficult to hang around people who are really good with money and always have extra. They're like, oh, you know, our 401k? You're like, oh, is that a new, what is that, a blender? <laughs> you don't even know what it is. You haven't, you've never had money that actually you could actually keep someplace. We got some extra in our mattress, both 20s, for a rainy day. You know, how many of you understand that in, in poverty you're looking for a source, but in wealth you're looking for a resource? In poverty you're looking for someone to give you something, but how many of you understand that people that are wealthy, their money works for them? They're like, money's like a soldier that works for them. And we don't, we don't just need to give people something. We need, to get, we need to teach people how to resource. People, listen, wherever you're weak, I'm using money as an example because it's easy to illustrate. But whatever it is you're not good at, those are the kind of people you need to build friendships with. Figure out what you're not good at and get people to stand in your exposed areas and the low places of your wall. How do I know what that is? You know very well what that is. It's the stuff you struggle with every day. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm struggling with sexual perversion or pornography or whatever it is. It's like find someone who you know has, listen, you know, if you struggle with pornography, it's just a lot easier to hang around with other people like, well, everybody's got problems. Oh, that's a great help. It's unsanctified mercy just keeps you in your, in your dysfunctional ecosystem. And it's funny how we can spiritualize our dysfunctions. But when you, ha- when, you, when you become friends with someone who's totally pure in that area and has no problems with it, it, it creates conviction. And it's good for us. That's a good word, too. Okay. Uh, well, there's more, but forget the rest. I, I guess I should just say this. I love the way that Nehemiah made the corporate mission personal. And he said, fight for your families. Listen, they're trying to rebuild the walls all around Jerusalem. But when the enemy came after him, he said, fight for your family, for your brothers, for your sisters, for your wives, for your, for your children. And I think, you know, I think great warriors that love our country, they get out on the battlefield. And I, I'm sorry, I've never, saying this almost ignorantly, never been in, in a battle. But I would think that when you get, when you leave for boot camp, you're fighting for your country. But when you're in the trenches, you're fighting for your family. There's something, about, there's something about understanding that this battle that I'm in is going to have personal benefit for me. Remember, he said, Jesus said, I'm returning and my reward is with me. And so I think it's important to realize when you're in the middle of a battle, what am I gaining? David said when he was fighting Goliath, before he fought Goliath, they said, listen, the, whoever beats Goliath 
will be tax-free for the rest of his life and will get to marry the king's daughter. Three times he asked about the king's daughter. (laughs) Just a thought. Anyway, we should move on. Remember the king's daughter. Chapter 6, and this is where I'm going to end, and this is where I want to spend the last ten minutes. Verse 1. When it was reported to Sambalat and good for nothing, I mean Tobiah, the the Gershom and the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors in its gates. Then Sanballat and Gershom sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Cherim in the valley of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. Now, point number one in this chapter. If you go down to the valley of Ono, you will find out why they called it Ono. <laughs> so, point number one, never negotiate with terrorists. Point number two, never talk to your enemy without your attorney present. And point number three, never engage the enemy on his terms. Never engage the enemy on his terms. If someone curses you, do not curse them back. If someone, offends, if someone, if someone is offended by you, go work it out. Don't carry unforgiveness in your life. Don't think that, that holding unforgiveness towards people is somehow winning some battle. Are you with me? Do not go down to the valley of Ono. Do not fight with the enemy's weapons. Do not wear someone else's armor. Joyce Myers said this. I love it. She said, unforgiveness is like drinking deadly poison and thinking the other person is dying. So I sent messengers to him saying this, I am doing a great work. Everybody say, I'm doing a great work. And I cannot come down. Say, I cannot come down. Say, I cannot come down. Why should the work stop and I leave and come down to you? And they sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I answered them in the same way. I'm doing a great work for God and I can't come down to you. And he says, and he sent messengers to me four times. And I answered him, I cut and pasted my last email. Sometimes we don't need new actions. We just need renewed actions. Sometimes it's just not giving up. Sometimes you're in the middle of something and it's not going well. And you're like, you know what? We need a new plan. No, you just need to not stop. You know, perseverance is the fruit of the Spirit. A fruit of the Holy Spirit, which means that demons don't have perseverance. Do you remember the story in Luke 18 where the, the, the wicked judge and the widow? How did the widow win? Did she have a great strategy? Did she have a great plan? No, she only had one plan, and that was drive the wicked judge crazy. And the wicked judge finally says to her, not because I respect man, and not because I like you, and not because I'm a good guy, but you are wearing me out. And I'm convinced that so, so many people are so used to it being easy. They don't, they've lost, there's, there, the, we've lost the sense that perseverance 
actually is a part of the kingdom. We, just, we, we teach grace in this weird way. It's like, I got saved by grace. You did get saved by grace. But after you got saved by grace, from there on, it's all about you working. Okay, you, you want some verses for that? You look like you do. How about this one? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. This is the one we love to highlight. For by grace you were saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. What's the next verse? For we are his workmanship created in, in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. <laughs> Did you get that? Listen, you didn't get in by works, but once you got in, start working. You were created for good works. Whenever we preach, whenever we, whenever we preach grace in a way that takes away personal responsibility, you preach a different gospel. You were created for good works. Your great-grandfather knew that. Somehow our society has lost the sense that perseverance and hard work are what creates breakthrough. Like it's all about God. Well, sometimes it is. But most of the time, it's about you and God. It's called co-laboring, not co-sleeping, not co-resting. I don't know if you got that. We're co-laboring with Christ. We're co-laborers. We're not co-resters. Well, Jesus rested. Yeah, did you see his schedule? People are like, well, Jesus, you know, he took off and he... Yeah, look at his schedule. You couldn't keep that schedule. It's killed him. Colossians, or I'll have to be done in a few minutes. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Listen to this. For this purpose also I labor. Everybody say labor. Striving. Everybody say striving. According to his power which works, works, uh, which mightily works within me. I messed it up again. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Let me just give you the three Greek words, the key words. The word labor means to grow weary in toiling. It's called, it's that four-letter word, work. Strive. It means to agonize over or contend for something. And the Greek, and the word, uh, he works mightily. The word works there. He works mightily within me. The word, the word, Greek word work there is the word energero or something like that. It means to have energy. Heck, I can't even read English. This is Greek. Here's the point. Listen, he says, he says, for this purpose also I labor. I grow weary toiling and I strive. I agonize over what God has given me energy to do. This is your, this is your mission if you should receive it. I got saved by grace. Yeah, you got saved by grace, but ground is taken through hard work. Ah, that's another gospel. No, you're not working for salvation. You're working from salvation. You're not working for love. You're working from love. But you're working. You were created to work. Oh, I don't like to strive. It says you should. Well, that Greek word, that Greek word means to agonize over. That's a pretty good meaning for strive. Well, that word labor, it means, it means to grow weary toiling. I'm telling you, people running around like, this guy is falling, this guy is falling. Oh, this is the worst it's ever been in history. Oh, things are so bad. Really? Really? You just don't know history. You need to go over to Gettysburg. 
You'd have realized 600,000 people died to free black people and in the Emancipation Proclamation. And it was 100 years later that they actually received any benefit from it. 100 years and 600,000 people to free black people. Women couldn't vote till 1920 in our country. And you know what? That was after 78 years of laboring, striving, contending. They didn't like, hey, we'd like to vote. I don't, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I'm saying our country is going through stuff. We're like, oh, thing, the whole sky's falling. Oh, things have never been worse. It's like you don't know history. You have 2.1 cars. Free television sets. You live in air-conditioned homes. Give me a break. You, if your great-grandfather was alive, he would laugh in your face. I don't know how we're going to solve this debt. Well, maybe you'll have to go all the way down to one car and one TV. I don't know. Whoa, I don't know if we can live like that. Am I trying to say things aren't bad? I'm saying, no, things are bad. Things have been bad. Much worse. Talk to the people in the black plague. Killed 34 million people. You know, when you start talking like that, people that know history just think you're ridiculous. You live in luxury. The kings didn't know a hundred years ago. No, they're like, oh, everything's terrible. Oh, the president, the, the United States governor, the Congress are... Uh, what? Tell Daniel. Tell Paul and Silas who lived in the days of Nero. Come on. People, you are, you're not that fragile. You're not that fragile. And it's, listen, when it's dark, it's time to rise. not time to, to complain. It's not time to whine. It's time to shine. Stop your complaining. I just don't know what they're going to do. They are you. They are you. I'm sorry. This is your problem. Oh, I didn't cause it. No, you're a part of it, though, because you're a part of this country. You're part of this globe. And the whole globe's in trouble. Well, brother, you don't understand about immorality. Yes, I do. I have an organization called Moral Revolution that I started, so I wouldn't whine, and so I'd do something about what I see. So I didn't want to stand on the outside like, wow, those bad people, look what they're doing. Well, they're having abortions and they're having sex. It's like, get in the middle of it and find out what's really wrong and stop waving signs at people when you don't know what the heck you're talking about. Well, you can't legislate morality. Really? Tell that to God when he gave you the Ten Commandments. Everybody believes in legislating morality. You, you, there wasn't, if you didn't legislate morality, people would come in your house and kill you. Well, that would be wrong. That's a legislation. You ever heard of the Wild West? You can't legislate a mindset, but you can legislate actions. And let me just finish with this. We're going to win. No, no, I'm not just trying to encourage you. I am trying to encourage you, but we're going to win. You know why? You know why? Because who's in charge? I want you to stand. I love when God sends Joshua to Jericho the night before they were going to take Jericho. Joshua gets there. I don't know if you know this, but Jericho had two walls. It was a double-walled city. So if you jumped over the first wall, you were stuck in the middle. That's why it was a fortified city. 
And, Jer- and, J- and Joshua is stressed out of his gourd, as you can imagine, because God says, tomorrow you're going to take the city. He gets to Jericho the night before to just check out how serious this situation is. And he meets an angel of the Lord. And he says to the angel, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel says, no. Are you for us or against us? No. No? No. I've come as the captain. (laughs) No, Joshua, the question isn't which team am I on? The question is, are you on my team? I'm not on your team. Are you on my team? That's what I want to know. No, I've come as the captain. See, you've got this all mixed up. You think you're in charge. Are you for us or against us? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's my team. You're on my team. The angels are with us. God is with us. If God is with us, who can be against us? Put your hand on your heart. Lord, I just release courage. I mean, people would be bold and brave. They would stop whining and start shining. Lord, I pray that we would leave here with a sense that God is in charge, that God has the answers, and that He's bringing His answers through His people. I bless this nation and the nations of the world. And I pray that this would be the most beautiful, the most wonderful, that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that what Habakkuk and Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied would happen through us. Amen. Thank you.